Support for WERU comes from the Abbey Museum, Maine's first Smithsonian affiliate, founded in 1928 at Sir Dimon Spring in Acadia National Park, and open year-round in downtown Bar Harbor with two locations and one mission to inspire new learning about the Wabanaki nations with every visit. More information at abbeymuseum.org. It's just a few seconds before 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online at WERU.org. Wabanaki Windows with your host Donna Loring is up next. Welcome to Wabanaki Windows. I'm your host Donna Loring. Wabanaki Windows is a monthly show featuring Wabanaki perspectives, topics and opinions, as well as interviews with Native artists, writers, and people of interest. Today, we have two special guests. Uh, one is uh, Dr. Rebecca Sockbasin, uh, a professor uh, at the University of Alberta, Canada, and is also a member of the Penobscot Nation. We also have Dr. Alex Wilson, uh, an associate professor from the University of Saskatchewan uh, who will be with us. And um, I want to thank both uh, Rebecca and Alex for joining me today. And uh, there's a few topics, just maybe two, I want to talk about. And uh, we'll, we'll start this uh, conversation um, basically about, we'll start with Rebecca first. And uh, Rebecca, you can just talk about your uh, your university experience and uh, kind of uh, your uh, introduction, how you got the the uh, native history uh, into that university. I'm I'm going to work these topics in together. So uh, go ahead, Rebecca, start. <coughs> sure. Uh, the University of Alberta um, ranks as one of uh, the last regional. Um, public comprehensive universities um, in Canada to uh, mandate the teaching of um, Aboriginal history, culture, um, and contemporary issues. So this is a very recent um, mandate that the University of Alberta has um, implemented um, within our Faculty of Education. I say that one of the last in the nation because the uh, we are about 10 years behind um, the University of Saskatchewan, which uh, Dr. Wilson um, is a prof at, um, and about um, also 10 years behind University of British Columbia. So um, this year we launched um, the first compulsory course um, in a public university in the province of Alberta's history, um, this past fall, and um, I was uh, one of the um, Indigenous scholars that developed the course and is now teaching the course. We have a, uh, a, a reach of about 800 students a year, and remember, this is in the Faculty of Education, so that um, there are other disciplines that certainly need to be taking up um, the issues that Aboriginal peoples face. Um, so this is, um, although the course is mandatory and it is the first of its kind within the province of Alberta, we're still, you know, some 10 years behind other regional public um, universities in Canada to be taking 
up um, the compulsory coursework. So for those um, listeners that are familiar with the LD-291, it was a um, legislated um, a legis- it was legislated back in the year of 2000 here in Maine to teach Wabanaki history culture how, with Wabanaki history and culture, uh, and that includes you know the um, teaching about the genocide and the oppression of Wabanaki people. So um, the converse has happened in Alberta, which is where I work, and I'm um, I'm an assistant professor at. Um, where the university governance system has just recently mandated within the Faculty of Education the teaching of um, Aboriginal history, contemporary issues, and oppression. And so um, here in the state of Maine, the University of Maine system isn't up to speed with the legislation, Um, whereas in Alberta, in Canada, Um, the university, the Faculty of Education is, um, and it hasn't been legislated to teach about. So um, there's a tremendous um, effort within a university to change a governance um, to make it compulsory like that so that a lot of the issues that are not really um, visible in in society about Native people um, are brought up in this course. So for many of our students, they're pre-service teachers, we train about 60 to 70 percent of um, teachers in classrooms in the province of Alberta. So it's a real blessing to have that uh, scope of um, influence um, and access to um, to people that are working so closely and heavily with um, Aboriginal students, with Native students. So I'll use Aboriginal and Native interchangeably because in Canada, I've gotten accustomed to referring to Native people as Aboriginal because it's, you know, it's sort of the mainstream word here in Maine. We still say Maine Indians. So um, I use them interchangeably, but they mean all Native people. So Aboriginal, Native, Indigenous are synonymous. Um, And I think perhaps, you know, the other um, folks that are talking, Dr. Wilson and uh, maybe Donna, um, will be using them interchangeably too, so... Yeah, so that's how I that that's sort of the nature of what I've been doing this past academic year, is um, working with these undergraduate students and teaching them, you know, about um, the history of Native people in that area, and the realities that they face and um, the colonial oppression that uh, we have survived and experienced, continue to experience, and how that impacts student learning. Mm-hmm. Um, Alex, are you there? Yes, good morning. Pastor. Good morning. Um, so do you have uh, a similar uh, requirement in, at uh, Saskatchewan University? Yeah, we do. Um, well, actually, we've had it for quite a few years, and right now our undergraduate program is shifting to a, a different um, focus, but it is part of uh, what, what the students are required to learn. And the other thing that that we have in the province of Saskatchewan and Manitoba is leaning this way too is um, mandated understanding of treaties from K to 12. Now that's the policy. It doesn't necessarily mean that all all teachers are versed in it or even understand the treaty relationship but it is a provincial policy that that's part of the curriculum. So treaties and then um, history and contemporary issues as well. Wow, that's great. Um, 
Now, in your uh, contemporary issues, um, there's a there's a subject that I've really been sort of wanting to talk about now for oh three or four months. I first read about it in uh, Indian Country Today, and it has to do with missing and murdered Aboriginal women uh, in Canada. And uh, <coughs> do you cover that specific topic, uh, uh, Rebecca or uh, Alex, in your studies? <coughs> Rebecca? Um, in, in our oh. curriculum, I think, you know, it's something that needs to be addressed, and I think it depends on, on which teachers are leading the class, but uh, it is such an important topic, and I think it's gaining more... Um, being highlighted more in the media, but it's still a long ways to go because I think that mainstream Canada for sure doesn't realize the how extensive and pervasive this issue is and how long it's been going on for. So I think it's really great that you're, you know, focusing the show on this topic. Yeah, uh, Rebecca? Yeah. <clears throat> um, she's asking if your compulsory, if the compulsory courses that we respectively teach in our universities, if we address the issues of murder to missing um, Aboriginal women. So, yeah. Um, yeah. It totally depends on the teacher, I would say. Yeah, so the way that their course is organized, they have different teachers. Uh, they have it in different sections. Um, I was just telling um, my aunt about the course at U Alberta and how it's it's one large course. And at USASC, it's like 40 sections of the same course. Yeah, we have many sections of small sections, <coughs> so there's more discussion. And uh, so there's a number of people teaching teaching the class. So... Again, there's a little bit of leeway in terms of what the uh, what curriculum is developed, even though the general um, course guidelines are, are the same. Mm, okay. Right. So it, um, I know that I we have um, there are four lecturers within our course, and the lectures that I take up address the legacy of colonialism, and I do you know, talk about it, but it warrants its own course, right? So there's so much to be uh, unpacked and understood about this issue of murder to missing women. <clears throat> um, but certainly, uh, I do take it up in my lectures. So it's um, the students that <clears throat> that um, that are part of our course are probably, you know, um, we hope that they're, you know, understanding that there's an issue. And it's, you know, part of the 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 biggest issue is not just giving them information, but um, ensuring that they are able to make sense of the information so that this doesn't just get reduced to, you know, women that, like a phenomena, like women are just murdered and missing, um, that they understand the underpinnings of it and where it comes from and how it, how it has come to be. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's really important. Like, um, going back to the assimilation policy era in Canada, where we see that there's um, federal policy that starts regulating women's bodies. And so there are things like the Sterilization Act of 1928, the Sterilization Act of 1932, and then just, you know, the total regulation of, of what women can wear, what, how women sit, all, you know, um, within churches and within schools and other institutions. And 
we see a lot of this regulation continuing today. So there's a long history within Canada and, and elsewhere in North America too where where um, women are treated as less than, than human. And so you can track that through history, how through policy but also through practice how how women's um, voices and bodies have been kind of dismissed and and uh, and violence enacted upon them. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that sterilization process that you brought up, I, you know, you in the United States you think, no, 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 it never happened here. Well, uh, yes, it did. Yeah. And uh, I was just reading uh, an article uh, from Indian Country Today that uh, it was about the... Uh, the genocide and the sterilization programs that we had here in uh, in the 1900s, and that how some of the states in this country are legislating uh, uh, to sort of ret- pay retribution to the families of those of those victims, and they're just starting to do that now. So, and it kind of it's it's funny, but all most of the stuff that happens uh, in Canada happens here but it seems to have gotten out more seems to be a louder voice from Canada than here um and i and i i attribute that i might be wrong and you can correct me but i attribute that to uh the ability f- for native people to sort of like have their own television network in in Canada um and some of the uh uh, progress that's been made in the colleges where uh, native issues, you know, has been mandatory to study. I know there's a long way for you guys to go, but um, I think you're making uh, lots of progress. Comment, Rebecca? <laughs> well, I'm, <clears throat> I'm always careful to give um, accolades or too much praise because there's so much work yet to be done. Um, and, you know, in, in so many ways it's not... Um, Although awareness may appear to be um, higher um, about these issues um, in Canada, because I, you know, I also firmly believe that um, it's the awareness is uh, may appear to be higher, but it's you know to go from awareness to action is is a long journey, and so it's um, you know public. Regional public comprehensive universities like the one that I teach at, the one that Dr. Alex Wilson teaches at, um, are really important places and transformative places to, you know, to mobilize information and knowledge about this. And and there's so much work yet to be done. Um, And certainly the University of Maine system could learn a lot from, um, you know, following those directions. because it's 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 like an in-kind contribution, you know, um, in so many ways that it's it's a governance shift. So within a university, it's you know the it's a matter of getting the faculty on board to approve the change of a course requirement. And <clears throat> it sounds very simple what I just said, but at the University of Alberta, it took about you know ten years of you know internal faculty lobbying to get this course required. 
So, and I'm sure that it was similar at the university that uh, Dr. Alex Wilson teaches at before, you know, the course was actually implemented. <clears throat> so there, there's something that would appear to be so simple, you know, um, takes so much political lobbying around um, that the United States uh, regional public comprehensive universities have the ability and power to do, and they need to be doing. So, um, you know, although... And there's is so much more to be doing. So uh, within Dr. Alex Wilson's university, as well as within my university, it's just our faculty of education that have made it compulsory. There are other disciplines that need to be taking this up university-wide, <clears throat> um, and awareness needs to be raised. So, Yeah. Well, you know, I what has really drawn my attention uh, to, and I'm going to go back to the missing and murdered women, uh, I'm going to just read just a little bit from the uh, executive summary of the RCMP report that they came out with. And I'm sure I know, Rebecca, you have comments on this, but I just want to get this basic information out there. And it, it's uh, yeah, in late 2013, the commissioner of the RCMP indicated an RCMP-led study of reported incidents of missing and murdered Aboriginal women across all police jurisdictions in Canada. That's all of Canada. Uh, police recorded incidents of Aboriginal female homicides and unresolved missing Aboriginal females in this review total 1,181, 164 missing and 1,017 homicide victims. There are 225 unsolved cases of either missing or murdered Aboriginal females, 105 missing for more than 30 days as of November 4th, 2013. Uh, the total indicates that Aboriginal women are overrepresented among Canada's murdered and missing women. And I, I will just tell you here that this is a uh, study conducted over a 30-year period. Uh, and the majority of all female homicides, uh, the RCMP says, are uh, solved, the 90%. And there is, uh, and they say that there's little difference in solve rates between the uh, Aboriginal and non-Aboriginal victims. Uh, comment on that, Rebecca, so far? Or Alex? Rebecca, do you want to comment, or...? Uh, sure. Um, well, first, I want to contextualize. Our, our CMP is police. Oh, I'm basically. sorry. In Canada, it's police. So, um, <clears throat> you know, there's there's about, according to this dual report, which was conducted by the police and the national, it's a collaboration, National Women's Association of Canada, um, came up with those numbers. So, um, bottom line, what the Native Women's Association of Canada says in terms of their um, in, in terms of their research findings is that there's a gross overrepresentation of Aboriginal women in Canada as victims of violence, and it must be understood in the context of colonial strategy <clears throat> that continues to seek to dehumanize Aboriginal women. So I think that uh, when we hear those numbers, you know, it's and the numbers fluctuate, but we often hear around 1,200 uh, Native women have gone, uh, according to this 30-year study, um, have gone missing and murdered. And, um, 
and the police have um, have collaborated with the Native Women's Association of Canada in this particular study. So what I want to point out is that the numbers are much higher than that um, because there are um, so many more women that have not been reported in this study so that um, it's important to understand uh, when the National Women's Association of Canada calls for the necessity to understand this as within the context of a colonial strategy um, that continues to seek, you know, to dehumanize Aboriginal women, that um, the numbers can be so dehumanizing too. Like we just recognize these as just numbers um, that each of these women, 88% of the women that go, that either are murdered or go missing um, are mothers and they have children that they've left, you know, that have uh, that have been taken away, that their children, their mother has been taken away from them, um, or their daughters, or their aunts, or their grandmothers, or they are granddaughters. So, um, you know, I think in, in one of the pieces that Native Women's Association of Canada has put out is the necessity to, um, you know, in many ways, humanize the statistics and understand um, that these numbers don't reflect, are not reflective of that gross overrepresentation. That you know there are other um, there are other researchers that estimate well over five thousand, um, and then even more than that. So, uh, you know, I want to I want to um, shed light on that because it is it takes a certain amount of social mobility to even report someone missing. Uh, one needs to know and have someone that cares and supports for them um, and has access uh, to the police um, in order to even go and file a missing report um, so that there is a certain amount of access that a person needs in order to report someone missing. And, um, and that's, you know, that needs to be better understood that it's not, uh, these numbers are not always, the numbers are much higher, I guess is what I is what I'm trying to get at here. Um, I can say a little bit more about that, but go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I think that's a good point that you raise about the numbers being higher. And, and the study the study wasn't a 30-year study. It just looked at a, a, a certain time period. It, it's just a recent study. Um, so it wasn't longitudinal in that sense. It just looked at data from a certain era. But if you take into context um, the residential school era and you know, the number of children that are missing or unaccounted for during that time, um, you know, that would increase numbers dramatically. Mm -hmm. So I think that um, for Indigenous people in Canada, um, regardless of whether it's 1,500 or, you know, 3,000 or even 5,000, it's still something that needs to be addressed. And um, I think that what's happening with some of these studies now is that it's finally opening up the dialogue, and it, it may be it's too late for many, many people, obviously, but at least it's, it's a start right now. Um, mm -hmm. So there's some problems with some of the research that's been done, or there's some things that's been challenged on, and one is that it tends to um, position Indigenous women as... Um, uh, you know, as being kind of um, blaming the victim kind of thing. So it's like they're at the wrong place at the wrong time, so it's their fault that that 
they went missing or it's their fault because they live a risky lifestyle, etc. So um, that is one of the things that the Native Women's Association and other people have been trying to um, examine in terms of the research that's come out and say, you know, just as you said, to humanize, humanize the women that are missing. These are human beings that have gone missing or that have been murdered and the way that the cases are handled or the way that the um, the yeah, you know the person is removed from the case and the per- and the person becomes a number. So there's importance in presenting these numbers, but at the same time, just as you said, we, we need to humanize each each of those numbers to a life. And each of those lives is connected to more lives. So we're talking about our communities. So when we say missing and murdered Indigenous women, um, you know, it's not just X person. It is it's something that impacts all of us across Canada as Indigenous people and Indigenous communities. And I think Rebecca is correct in using the term genocide. So that that is what's happened. It's happened for a few hundred years, and it continues to happen. So I think this is a time now when we can start to reflect on the research, but also say, okay, what do we need to do? And the government probably won't have a solution for it. So I think, you know, some of the efforts that are going on right now by artists, for example, like the Walking With Our Sisters exhibit, the Red Dress uh, show uh, exhibit, and other community-based grassroots um, educational but also um, healing kind of efforts are taking place around this. So it's sharing information and also helping people kind of just grasp um, how horrific and and, um, ongoing this has been, but also providing a space for people to to kind of deal with it and then also say, now what do we need to do next in order to address this? Right, and you know, sort of what helped me to sort of conceptualize the the hugeness of this is even if the statistics aren't right on, if you look at this these numbers over a 30-year period, you're still looking at something like 32 homicides Aboriginal women homicides a year, and you know thirty two. It's it's really, you know, Rebecca was talking this morning about you know, listening to stories on the news about you know families that lose their sons or daughters. I mean, and they they publicize it. Non-native people get their stories publicized in the media nationally when they lose a a child or a child is missing, and you know you look at look at the number of Native and Aboriginal women murdered and missing, uh, it's it's just boggles my mind that this has not been brought forward, you know, until, well, it hasn't really in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, Re- Rebecca, comments? Yeah, uh, what I talk about in, um, you know, in the, um, with my students and, and others, uh is that there is a uh, there's a, a national international um, position on the awareness raising about 
when people become missing. So that um, in the National Association or uh, the Native uh, Women's Association of Canada um, highlights this in in the most recent report as well. You know, they they trouble um, the awareness that is raised when uh, when uh, white middle class women um, go missing. And I I want to um, bring our attention to something that we often see like on the Today Show or other national news um, shows uh, when a college, a young college woman that has been at spring break um, either in Florida, Jamaica, or um, some spring break um, destination. Uh, within the past 10 years, I know that I've seen at least a half a dozen um, news stories on the national news um, parents get on the on the Today Show. They are trembling with fear. They are asking the nation to help them look for their daughter, who has just been gone to either uh, one of the you know one of the um, Caribbean islands uh, for spring break, and um, the the daughter goes missing. Now, typically, um, these cases are predominantly uh, white women uh, who are going to university, and the the general uh, public awareness about their missing um, is very high and it's taken very seriously by the public media. Um, the disproportionality of this happening to Aboriginal women is is that the numbers just don't lie. Like it, we know that this is happening. Um, Aboriginal women are going missing upwards to five to seven times more than non-Aboriginal women, but we never see these cases on the national news at this level that uh, white middle-class women are. And they deserve that kind of um, awareness. The white middle-class women that go missing deserve that awareness raising. Their families deserve to get onto national TV and plead with society to help them find their daughter. That is a human right that everyone deserves and not everyone is getting. So the attention, you know, my my um, my call here is for the necessity to raise awareness when Aboriginal or Native women, Indigenous women go murdered and missing. Um, and those rights need to be afforded at the same level that uh, white middle class women are being afforded that right and their families. Um, and they deserve that. White middle class women deserve that. You know, I don't want to, I don't want my commentary here to be misunderstood. It's important that every woman that goes murdered and missing has, uh, it's a, that it's a public priority. And uh, we know that Aboriginal women are not being afforded this very human right of even just having that awareness raised when they do go missing. In fact, it's being swept under the carpet. And because there isn't a, a, um, an, a national government uh, strategy to address it, I mean, a report has been written, but there's not a, a strategy to address the amount of Native women that are going murdered and missing because there is not a strategy, a systemic strategy to address this, it is it is genocidal. So to allow it to still be happening and to not be um, addressed, like Harper just pulled all the money to, um, there, there was this relationship with the RCMP as well as the Native Association um, 
of women that has, you know, did this report that uh, Donna is reading off at the beginning, you know, funding to investigate that and find strategies has been pulled. So, you know, I, I assert that the government continues to engage in this genocide because there's nothing, there's not, there's not nearly enough what needs to be done to address violence against Aboriginal women. Alex? Yeah, I'd, I'd agree with that. So many people have been calling for a, <clears throat> a national inquiry, and, um, you know, BC as a province has a strategy, and Manitoba has developed a strategy as well, but um, uh, I think another component could be an inquiry. And by inquiry, it isn't, um, we don't mean, you know, just uh, asking, you know, what's going on and not doing anything about it, but really to address systemic issues of oppression, such as racism, homophobia, sexism, misogyny, and classism, and how those interconnect. So to look at our institutions of social management, like the education system, the healthcare system, the justice system, even, you know, business culture, all of those things are producing the same kind of outcome which continually not only marginalizes certain groups, and in this case specifically Aboriginal women, but um, silences, silence voices, but also is um, contributing to death. So I think if if there was something done that systemically examined, you know, the points in in these different institutions and to figure out, you know, where where are the gaps, what is going wrong, and how does this happen? It's not just one racist cop or one racist judge or a 911 um, caller, call intake person. It's a whole system of things that are continually reproducing the same kind of outcome, which, which um, further marginalize uh, uh, Indigenous women. This is true, and, you know, <clears throat> the uh, Indian country today has done a series of articles on this, and uh, <clears throat> one of the articles uh, has to do with uh, 10 unheeded calls for a Canadian inquiry, uh, and, it, and it gives uh, <clears throat> various organizations like the United Nations and the labor unions and the churches and the Native Women's Association of Canada uh, numerous organizations requesting that the uh, uh, Canadian government open up an inquiry. And to every single one of these uh, requests, uh, Hopper has uh, refused. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, even I don't know more, the social movement, that, that's one of the calls to action that um, impelled the movement from the beginning, and that's always been there. And I think that uh, it's an issue that's important for Indigenous communities because we know... Uh, because we're impacted by it and the denial by the federal government is um, you know I don't think it's coincidental it's aligned with their policy that is continually eroding um, indigenous sovereignty land rights protection of water land and treaty rights so um, I think uh, what some people are saying is that no we'll just do our own inquiry and I think you know that that can be possible as well. So we've got artists, we've got academics, uh, people, mothers, people working in communities that, um, you know, maybe we can 
do our own kind of, uh, um, not just healing, but our own analysis of what's going on. And, you know, many people are doing that, but to do it on more of a concerted effort um, degree would be, I think, beneficial because I think most of us acknowledge now that we're not going to get the kind of support in terms of resources, financial and otherwise, from, from this government at least. So we've got to take things into our own hands, even though it should be a federal responsibility, like the government should care about this. Yeah, you have uh, some premiers from, uh, you've got one from Manitoba, Greg Sillinger, uh, Ontario, uh, Kathleen Wynne in uh, <clears throat> Alberta, Alison Redford in uh, Newfoundland, uh, Kathy Dunderdale, they all back a national inquiry. Yeah. Uh, so it's not just like, <clears throat> you know, it's not like people in, in, in high leaderships not requesting this and, and the Native uh, uh, tribes and what, you know, they're requesting it as well. It's just this entrenched uh, government, Harper's government is just refusing. I just, it, it, you know, and I just find that, uh, I find it criminal, actually. Um. <clears throat> Rebecca. Yeah, um, I think that it's it has so much to do with. Um, it's like I think about um, even the the territory that we're sitting on right here, um, in Maine, um, Blue Hill. This is Penobscot Blue Hill. This is, you know. We're talking about it like, well, let's. It had it's this phenomena, you know, of all these twelve hundred murdered and missing women happen uh, is happening right now. This is a contemporary issue, and um, and lots of awareness needs to be a needs to be raised around it. People need to better understand it um, in order for action and policy to be taken. So, however that can get embedded in the institutions like what Dr. Alex Wilson is saying here um, is intrinsic I think to the social and political change for our people um, so making it mandatory for people to learn about for example and not only to learn about but to have opportunities to make sense of with uh, with indigenous scholars like ourselves like how we present the information how we unpack it and help people to make sense of it um, but as I'm sitting here in this uh, in this uh, space right now, like on Wabanaki territory, I'm also reminded of, you know, the colonial legacy that, um, you know, it's like we think about where Dr. Wilson is right now in Saskatchewan, right? And we're sitting here in Maine. In Maine, there's about 5,000 Indians <clears throat> just in the state. In, um, I don't know what the city or actually Alex is probably in Manitoba, but out west, you know, in the cities, like in Edmonton, for instance, where I teach, just in the city there's over 50,000 Indian people. And so I think it's important to contextualize this discussion with the understanding and the reality that our people have survived 97% depletion of original populations. So even here in Maine, there were originally over 20 Wabanaki tribes, and today there exists five and um, that one of the most densely populated 
and most heavily genocided Indigenous peoples in North America were right here in these areas, in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts. And when you think back at those bounties, those genocidal bounties, that the scalps of Native women were worth less than the scalps of Native men. And so how that's manifested today, you know, in the invisibility of even these issues. I mean, there was a, a very long, you know, when, when Dr. Wilson says that that study was, you know, not even a longitudinal study, like the way that I would take up the research and the analysis of this issue would be to most certainly address those genocidal bounties and help people to be aware of the legacy that we continue to feel about how Native women have been dehumanized and continue to be dehumanized. So why is it okay for there to not be a national inquiry? You know, if this were if this were non-Native women, if these were, like I said earlier, white middle-class women that were five to seven times more likely to be murdered or missing, there would be major national inquiry and investigation into this. But um, Native women continue to be dehumanized. And so it's, um, you know, that is rooted in, you know, those, those genocidal, those colonial engagements that we continue to feel the effects of. And so hence, you know, Squaw Mountain, Squaw place names, right? And that has, there's all a very strong linkage, you know, to, to all of this. So I want to make sure that we don't lose focus to, you know, main Indian issues too, that it's not just something that's happening over there in Canada. Well, you think about it, our people have been so heavily genocided here in the state that the issues become so invisible. And um, that now that we, there are more of us that are publishing about these issues, teaching at universities about these issues, it mobilizes a lot of information and knowledge about it, uh, which is intrinsic to social and political change for our people. Um, and lest we never forget that even just the territory that we're on right now has had a very long colonial legacy and uh, long and dark colonial legacy of the dehumanization um, of Native women right here. So it's, um, you know, as I'm listening to this, it's, I'm, I'm you know, painfully reminded about what it, what, what it is that we face here too. Like, you know, think of the, like that word squaw, right? So that word squaw um, has been used to incite violence upon Native women, right? And we know that it's, it's offensive and, um, and it has been used as a, as a word that would then, when I say incite violence, I mean it's being, it has historically and contemporarily used as a word that incites, which, which um, incite meaning would create or impose or, or uh, make violence, it's like a violent way to refer to a Native woman. And it was only not even 10 years ago that that place, state place name was eradicated from the state. So it's, you know, it's everywhere and it needs to be understood. And those, that's the type of unpacking of the information that needs to be done, right? Right. <clears throat> yeah, and I think even beyond, even beyond your territory there, if we, we think about this landmass that we live on as Indigenous people, uh, you know, I don't know the numbers, but probably right now there are just as many or if not more women along the Mexican-U.S. Um, border, artificial border, that um, are detained or missing or, or murdered and their cases aren't investigated. 
So, you know, it, it's a Canadian issue, but it's also it's also an issue across this um, across North America and um, you know, our indigenous relatives from from the south are facing similar issues. Um, you know, just even moving around. So another another thing though that I wanted to bring up before we run out of time is um, how this issue impacts particular communities within uh, within our own indigenous communities. So, um, for instance, the impact on murdered and missing Two Spirit people or trans women hasn't really been addressed in this general narrative. And, um, I know, I know the report, the police report, and other reports that have been done have kind of uh, maybe one line of mention, but not even address it. So I think that's something that I'm really concerned about because, just on a personal level, um, I've been impacted by it because I've had over four four friends who are two spirit or trans identified who were murdered in the past within the past few years, and in all of the instances. Um, the, the cases were processed through the justice system, and um, they were all charged with murder, the people that murdered these women, but um, none of them actually were convicted on murder. They were all less than manslaughter. So again, there's this understanding that um, these women or two-spirit people kind of deserved it. So, mm-hmm. so the um, people that murdered them we're presenting the cases as self-defense. So again, there's a re-victimization of a group of people and a dehumanization as well. And so I think it's really important, uh, you know, and there hasn't been much research done, if any, on those subgroups. And I think they're overrepresented as well in the statistics. Mm. Yeah. Well, maybe this is... Uh fodder for someone to start doing that kind of research. <laughs> Not you, Rebecca. Right. <laughs> uh, most definitely, you know, I think that um, the time has come now where we have we have Indigenous scholars, we have community members who are not only capable, but they're excellent scholars and excellent um, researchers, so we can kind of do our own we can kind of set our own agenda and do the work, but uh, it would be fantastic if it was supported by, you know, the powers that be that fund these things. Um, but, um, you know, hopefully that, that will change at some point. Yeah. There's always that issue of uh, funding. Yeah. Uh, but I do want to just, <clears throat> I want to get this, I want your comments on what I'm going to read here. And uh, <clears throat> it was during, uh, it was in May that this was written, uh, May 13th, 2014, was during uh, all, when all of these things were coming out in Canada, these reports uh, were being made known or whatever. And this was uh, an editorial from the Star Phoenix. And the editorial, of course, they put a disclaimer on the end, but it's, it's, uh, it's words about you know, what their staff in general feel about this issue. And uh, it, it reads like this. It says, uh, on, on the weekend, U.S. President Barack Obama lost his weekly radio spot to his wife, Michelle, 
as she took to the airwaves to press for global action over the abduction of almost 300 Nigerian schoolgirls <clears throat> by an African terror group. The plight of those girls who were rounded up in the dead of night has caught the attention of the world, including Canada's Foreign Affairs Minister, John Beard, who offered help to the Nigerian government to locate the victims. <clears throat> the weekend had barely ended, however, before James Anaya, the UN Special Rapporteur on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, released a report blasting the Canadian government for, among other sins, refusing to call an inquiry into the murder and disappearance of almost 1,200 Aboriginal women and girls. In response, Justice Minister Peter McKay told the House of Commons Monday he was already doing enough and there was no need for more talk on the matter. <clears throat> to be sure, the government has taken measures to bring greater accountability to those caught harming women, including Aboriginal women, and enhancing the rights of women on reserves. But last week, Auditor General Michael Ferguson released a report that painted a stark picture of Mr. McKay's government starving <clears throat> Native police services of the ability to act on those enhanced measures. As is often the case on Canada's reserves, the lack of support for Ottawa, from Ottawa has left infrastructure in tatters, including that of the Native police services and schools. Rather than step up to the plate on these issues, the Conservative government has been working to transfer liabilities for those shortcomings to the local bans. Both the Native Police Service and proposed education agreements carried clauses that could result in a loss of funds if the bans aren't able to meet minimum standards. And in both cases, years of defunding out of Ottawa almost guarantees many bans will be forced to default. This is a cynical bit of politics designed to transfer blame to the victims. The arrogant approach espoused by both Mr. McKay and Aboriginal Affairs Minister Bernard Velcourt as they brag about all the steps that government has taken, even as people such as Mr. Anaya write reports talking about how the divide between Aboriginal people and the government keeps growing is fueled by a sense of mistrust. It is for that reason and to get to the root of why so many Native women and girls are targeted, that Mr. Anaya, most provinces and plethora of interest groups have asked for a comprehensive nationwide inquiry into the issue of missing and murdered Aboriginal women and girls. It is also for the families of people such as Daylene Kaboss, Rochelle Liebier, and Kelly Nicole Goforth, all three of whom are suspected to have been murdered because of their ethnicity the latter who have been connected to a single serial killer. It is laudable the world is watching Nigeria's girls, but statistically it is still more dangerous to be an Aboriginal woman in Canada. What's your thoughts? Well, I think, I think that article kind of spells it out, you know. Um, violence has become so normalized for... Indigenous women that, unfortunately, it's just part of our everyday lives. Mm. And, um, you know, it's not just the serial killers uh, out there killing Indigenous women. Um, many of these women were murdered by their intimate partners. You know, 
and many of the some of them happen in our own communities. So the internalization of violence, the normalization of violence, um, the normalization of misogyny, the hatred of women, it, it is a global issue, but we're feeling it in a specific way here in our communities. <coughs> I'm thinking about um, as this as this reality is um, is experienced within my own home and within my own family. Um, my 16 year old daughter, who is visibly native, um, I don't allow her to take public transportation in the city of Edmonton. And her best friend, um, since first grade, is Ukrainian, as a as a blonde hair, blue eyed. Uh, young woman, and she takes a public transportation throughout the city. And recently, the mother had asked, you know, the 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 young white woman's mother had asked me, "Why is it that you don't let your daughter, you know, why is it that she can't take the public transportation, you know, with my daughter?" And um, as I've explained, you know, to my daughter on numerous occasions, you know, it's you know, it's not safe. It's not safe. She doesn't have the same, you know, privilege uh, that her best friend has, you know, to go on a bus and not be targeted because she's a young Native woman. And um, that is, uh, you know, what James and I is saying is absolutely, you know, bang on. It is uh, a very violent and dangerous, you know, society out there. And it's the gays, there's a... There, the tendency is that the gays be in another country, and it's like Canada, the United States. We can't. There's so much to be taken care of in our own backyard, within our own homeland. Um, but there's an there is a seductive gaze to look in other places. Um, but I agree with Alex. At the same time, we need to recognize, um, you know, how dominant misogyny, the hatred of women is. Uh, across the world and you know Obama's wife was not in the wrong to call for that human right to be afforded to those Nigerian girls you know every woman deserves this human right um, to live happy free and liberated and um, to be able to you know ride on public transportation and not fear you know for being targeted because you're a native person and you're the most likely group you know my daughter and I, um, in that city, are the most likely group to be violently attacked on the city bus, you know, and so she's not allowed to take public transportation for that reason. And so, you know, as a parent, I don't know if that's the, the best choice to be making, but certainly it's, it's how, you know, I feel safe when she's not in my, you know, in my sight. Um, so that's how these, you know, realities are manifested. Um, in in our everyday lives is that it is a it is a constant fear and necessity to be aware um i what what i'd like to say about this is we hear a lot about uh reconciliation and the truth and reconciliation commission in canada has interviewed and taken up stories of about over seven thousand um, Indian residential school survivors, um, and there are still so many. There were over 150,000 Indian residential school students, um, and 
one of the um, one of the ideas that I want to put out here is the necessity for the government and I'm talking about the United States and Canada here for the governments to take up reconciliation um, in an institutionalized way so that awareness about what we've talked about this morning is mobilized in a way that people are um, are required to learn about it otherwise it doesn't get put on people's agendas and it certainly doesn't get put on you know a national or public agenda within the media um, and that these are public responsibilities so um, it's it's very important that the Truth and Reconciliation uh, Commission hears the stories of the survivors and that those stories are mobilized and understood but the systems and the institutions like the universities need to take a much stronger position and need to step up and take responsibility and mandate, you know, and require the learning about what it is that we've talked about this morning. So um, I just wanted to put that plug in as many times as I can, especially here in Maine. <laughs> Alex, last word. Um, yeah, I, I agree with Rebecca that there's got to be a ongoing effort to um, not just raise awareness, but like she said, um, move towards the action part of things. And uh, before there can be reconciliation, the truth has to be told. And this is part of the truth telling. Yeah, and just one last comment about uh, Mrs. Obama taking the radio spot from her husband to talk about the Nigerian schoolgirls. I have no problem with that. But I would have really uh, liked to have seen or heard from her maybe the same show about all of the Native women that have been murdered and are missing. Uh, so we get left out of the dialogue, and um, that's what we're trying to correct here on this, on this show. So uh, I want to thank you for uh, agreeing to talk about this and for being on the show. <coughs> You're listening you. to... You're welcome. <laughs> You're listening to WERU Abenaki Windows. I'm your host, Donna Loring. We're talking today with uh, Dr. Rebecca Sockbason and Dr. Alex Wilson. Uh, the music for our show is by Wal- Ralph Richter, a track called Little Eagles, from his CD, Dreamwalk. Thank you again, and tune in again next month for another Abenaki Windows. Support for WERU comes